why are your parents so much braver at doing things like shutting the closet door or checking under your bed than you are? It's okay to be a little shy of that, because I was when I was a kid. I remember vividly being afraid of the dark, being concerned that there was something lurking in the closet and so insisting that it be closed, or being concerned that that little bump that I heard was a monster crawling around ready to get me. It is right to be afraid of those things if those things are real, right? Parents know that those things are not real, and so when our children cry out to us and say, hey, there's something under my bed. We can get up in the middle of the night, even a little dreary, and walk over to their bed and check for them without any sense of fear. Because we don't expect to actually find a monster there, right? But if we wake up in the middle of the night and hear someone rummaging around in our house and know that all of our children are in bed, we're going to respond quite differently, aren't we? We're going to assume that there's an intruder in our house who is up to no good. Why is that? Why, are we, why is our pulse elevated and our adrenaline going when we hear bumping that we think is an intruder and it's not when we go to check in the closet for our children? It's because we expect to find one and we don't expect to find the other, right? We don't expect to look under our children's bed and actually see a monster, But we do know it's a very real possibility that we may have an intruder in our house if we hear someone at night. How we respond to these situations, excuse me, how we respond shows what we expect to find. How we approach any given circumstance shows what we expect to find there, always. It's no different for how we approach going to God's house. What does how you approached coming to God's house this morning reveal about what you expect to find here? How does my approach to God's house this morning reveal what I expect to find here? This is a question we must all ask ourselves, and this is a question that the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants us to ask, wants us to think about. You see, he's teaching us here in Ecclesiastes 5 that there is caution warranted in going to God's house because of what we'll find there, because of what we expect to see. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, he starts out, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Use caution because of what you'll find there. Why should we approach church going with caution? Shouldn't church be a safe place where we can come and relax and be ourselves? Why can't we approach it that way? Why should we approach it with some measure of guardedness, according to the preacher? Caution is appropriate when we come to God's house because this house is now under the sun, right? We've talked about this change that's come about. Because of Adam and Eve burning down the garden, now we are in the ruins of Eden. Now we are in the wilderness, under the sun. And under the sun, God's house is no longer as safe a place as it once was. One reason the preacher reveals that we need to guard our steps when we go to the house of God is because the house of God is full of fools. Fools. 
This is the point he wants to draw out by repeating this foolishness language over and over. Verse 1, it's better to draw near than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Verse 3, a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. He wants us to think about this foolishness. Or in verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. This is talking to people in God's house and saying, you are being a fool. God's house is often full of fools. Any time spent with the church will teach us this. Jesus taught us to expect this when he gave the parable of the wheat and the weeds and said God's kingdom is like sowing wheat in a field and then going to sleep and someone else coming in and sowing weeds and the wheat and the weeds grow up together. Many would use this and say, this is a reason that church should be avoided altogether. See, church is just full of a bunch of foolish hypocrites. Why would I want to go there? They would have a valid criticism. The preacher's not denying church is full of fools. The problem is we are under the sun, and so every gathering of people under the sun is full of fools, full of folly and full of foolishness. Because we live in the ruins of Eden. The church is no different in that respect. But the church is a place where fools are called to go and get wisdom. The church is more like an emergency room than a retirement home. And emergency rooms are dirty and busy and full of chaos. So the preacher's warning us to guard our steps when we go to the house of God because it's full of fools, but not to warn us off from going to the house of God, but to make us aware of what to expect there. The other reason that the preacher says we are to guard our steps is because we ourselves sometimes are those fools. Notice how the preacher is shifting from the way he's talked in Ecclesiastes so far. He's made many observations, right? I saw, I saw, I looked under the sun and I saw. And here, what does he say? Verse 1, guard your steps. He's using imperative language, a command, telling us to do something. This is addressed to you and I. Guard your steps because if you don't, you yourself will end up offering the sacrifice of fools. You yourself will end up a fool. Churches are full of fools, sometimes because other people are foolish, and sometimes because we ourselves are foolish. It's a warning to us, and we may not even realize we ourselves are the ones being the fools. As the preacher says in verse 1, they do not know that they are doing evil. See, foolishness is ignorance as well. You don't necessarily know that you are the one being the fool. Ultimately, the preacher wants us to come to the conclusion that we are to guard our steps when we go to God's house, not just because it's full of fools and we may be one of them, but because the house itself is the house of God. It does not belong to us. It is not our house. It is God's house. We are here because of him and his initiative. And therefore, we should guard our steps when we come. Cautious because of what we expect to find here. The preacher warns us what to guard our steps against. He warns us not to offer the sacrifice of fools in verse 1. And then unpacks that in the rest of this passage. What is the sacrifice of fools? There's two warnings he's primarily concerned about. Two sacrifices he's thinking of. 
In verses 2 to 3, he focuses on rash words. And we'll look at that a little bit and see what that is. And then in verses 4 to 7, he kind of transitions to talking about vows. And talking specifically about empty vows or empty promises. And so we'll look at those individually. Verses 2 to 3, the preacher starts. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. As the preacher unpacks these sacrifices of fools, he gives it to us in a kind of a poetic form. See, he starts off with a warning, tells us, don't do this. And then he gives a reason for that warning, for this is why. And then, because he's a sage in the wisdom tradition, he gives us a short proverb, a short saying to remind us of what he's trying to teach us. Here in verses 2 to 3, the warning is clear. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. He's contrasting, in verse 2, between what is preferable in verse 1, right? Drawing near to listen. He's talking about how we respond to God in his house. We read one of those possible responses this morning in our call the confession from Isaiah 29. A people who honor the Lord with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. If we are rash to honor God with our lips and our speech, and yet our hearts want nothing to do with him, that is foolish. That's the essence of hypocrisy, isn't it? We say we worship and honor God, but our hearts are far from him. God despises that. That's not the only way, though, that God's people can be rash in their speech. Jesus calls attention to another example of this kind of speech in the New Testament when he talks in Matthew 6 about how we ought to pray. Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, he tells his people, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, who think they'll be heard for their many words. In other words, don't offer a bunch of rash words to God, a bunch of religious speech, And think you're going to manipulate God into hearing you because you say the right phrases and add more and more phrases on top of each other. Sometimes we're tempted in the church to think this way. We're tempted in the church to offer some kind of performative speech where we might say, speak in Christianese. If we say the right theological terms, we'll be shown to be righteous. We'll be shown to belong. We'll be shown to impress others with our lofty theological words. If we say the right things, sometimes we think that we must be speaking for God. We have presumptive speech as well in the church. Rashly, we think God's words and God's thoughts are the same as our thoughts and our words. And so we speak on behalf of God, presuming to know what he is saying without actually listening to him in his word. Other times, and I think I see this most often, we have perfunctory speech where we approach one another, especially in times of suffering or heartache. And we either speak rashly, trying to cover it up with some kind of a trite saying 
or trite promise. And we try to move on because the conversation is uncomfortable. Or what happens to me a lot pastorally, I imagine it happens to many of you, I want to say the right thing to fix it. You ever try to do that? You encounter suffering in the church and you think, if I can just say the right thing, this will be fixed. And sometimes there's no silver bullet. There's no way to fix the kind of suffering that we encounter in this emergency room called church. But yet we speak rashly and show ourselves to be more foolish than we thought. The preacher warns against this. Avoid these rash words. And the reason we ought to avoid these rash words is because God is in heaven and we are on earth. Verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. In other words, God is supreme and you are not. God is king and you are not. So when God has brought someone to a point of suffering and given you words of comfort to say, but no solution to offer, that is because God in his wisdom has done it and you ought to submit to that. When we come to church and think we're going to impress God who is in heaven by our Christianese and Jesus jargon, we do not. God is in heaven and we are on earth. God is king and we are not. There is no impressing him with any amount of religious speech. There is no right that we have to presume to speak for him when we're speaking outside of or in contradiction to his word. God himself speaks. He is in heaven and we are not, and he does not need us to make up something on his behalf, for he's given us his word. This is what the preacher wants us to know. We ought to avoid these rash words because doing so, speaking this way, makes you look foolish. And it proves you to be a fool, and the end of foolishness is destruction. The preacher gives a proverb to back this up and really sink it home. And this proverb is admittedly kind of difficult to understand, at least for me. Verse 3, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. The second half isn't too hard. I really am not sure what the preacher means when he says a dream comes with much busyness. Other parts of Ecclesiastes, he talks about this busyness That's actually a vexation. And so I think what he's getting at is that the more we are busy, the more busy work we go about, the more our dreams flow out of that busyness and toil rather than out of listening to and being shaped by God's voice. I think that's what he's getting at, but that's tenuous. Either way, his point is clear. It's better to be thought a fool and remain quiet than to speak and show them right. Right? That's what he's getting at with much speech. We show the foolishness that still remains in our own heart. And so it is better, as he says, to draw near, to listen. That's the first thing he wants to warn us about. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools by showing yourself to be rash in your words as you come to the house of God. But not only that. Don't be rash in your words and don't be empty in your promises. Don't make foolish vows, he says in verse 4. Listen to verses 4 to 7 again. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. 
Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This section is different for us because we don't usually make vows very often. We don't think in terms of making and keeping a vow like they did in the Old Testament. A vow, though, is really just a promise to do something in response to something else. God makes vows when he makes covenants with his people. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will care for you in this way. And he keeps those promises. His people make vows back to him often in the Old Testament. And often these vows are expressed as a means of thanksgiving for God's aid or provision. That says, you deliver me from these enemies, God, and I will offer up this sacrifice to you in thanks. Or you deliver me from these enemies, God, and I will continue to worship you in this way. Often it was promises of God's people to remain faithful to him even after the crisis had passed. We have several examples of vows in the Old Testament, such as Hannah's vow, when she's praying for a child. And she's been barren, and she promises God that she will devote this child to his service. And later, she gets pregnant with Samuel. And when he's old enough, she keeps her vow and brings him to the temple to serve. And the prophet Samuel is all uh, uh, the foundation of the story of First and Second Samuel. In addition to that, we have the Nazarite vow in Numbers 6, which was a promise from some of God's people to take this vow and to show themselves to be devoted to Yahweh, to be pure, and to be about the purity of his people. We also see foolish vows in the Old Testament, like the vow Jephthah makes in Judges 11. He wants glory and he wants triumph in a war. And so he vows to God that the first thing that comes out of his door when he comes home will be offered up to God in sacrifice. And his daughter is the one who greets him coming out of his door. He makes a foolish, rash, empty vow and keeps it by sacrificing his daughter. We have examples of wise and foolish vows. We're also told from the Old Testament that vows are not necessarily required. This is why the the preacher can say, it's better that you don't vow than that you vow and not keep it. In Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 23, we're told more about vows. And we're told that it's not required that you vow. But that if you vow, if you make a promise to God, you must keep it. And you must not delay in keeping it, kind of putting it off, hoping maybe God will forget. We still make promises today, don't we? We don't necessarily call them vows, but we still make promises today. The most common one, I think, for many of us, maybe you've made this, I've certainly made this. God, I am so sick right now. And if you bring me out of this sickness, boy, I will X, Y, Z, right? I'll redouble my efforts to read my Bible or something like that. Like trying to say, man, God, I need your help right now. This crisis is so strong. Please help me. I will respond this way. We make promises like that. We make promises for Christian service when we think, uh, hear uh, the call to go on a missionary trip or the call to go overseas and serve And we think, man, I'll do that. And we respond and we say, God, I will promise to go and do this if you make a way. 
More commonly in the Christian church, we make vows when we practice God's ordinances, like baptism. We're promising that we will forsake Satan and his ways and follow Jesus. And then we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We make a vow. We make a promise. When we come to the Lord's table, we're renewing our vows in a sense, promising that Jesus is our hope and our king. And that what we share in this meal, we trust that he will nourish us in response to this promise that we will follow him. Shortly, we are going to be making more vows as a church. We're going through a process right now, right, of renewing our church membership, of reaffirming our vows to one another. And part of that process, we'll be making a membership covenant vow to one another. Listen to the wording of our membership covenant now as we will be taking it on. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give ourselves up to him, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully commit ourselves to God and to one another to do the following. Hear that vow language there? We're promising, solemnly and joyfully, we are committing ourselves to God and to one another to do this. To protect the unity of our church, to share the responsibility of our church, to serve the ministry of our church, to support the testimony of our church. We'll be doing that, and we ought not to make those promises lightly. We ought not to enter into those promises with no intent of keeping them. And once we're in those promises, we ought not delay in keeping them. And we ought not say, it was a mistake. I need to back out of this. We need to take it seriously or we are in danger of making foolish vows. We make foolish vows when we make them thoughtlessly. If we don't think carefully about the consequences of the vow, that is foolish. I think one of the ways we can end up doing this over and over, taking vows too light, delaying the payment of our vows, is in singing promises to God. Just think about how many songs that we sing to God We sing often of his goodness and often of his praise, but we also sing promissory things to him, don't we? We sing aspirationally and we sing and ask him to do this and promise to do that, right? We do that all the time and we ought not to be singing thoughtlessly. I don't know about you, but my mind can wander when we're singing worship to the Lord. And I can find myself singing something without thinking about what I'm actually singing. And that's foolish. Because God will hold us accountable for what we say and do in his house. We not only make thoughtless promises, though. Often, we make posturing promises. We try to perform in God's house to show that we fit in. To show that we ought to be here. This leads us to go before the messenger, and here in Ecclesiastes 5, when he says go before the messenger in verse 6, he's talking about someone sent from the temple to collect this vow, to say, hey, you promised this, you going to fulfill it? We're tempted to say, ah, it was a mistake, I didn't mean to, when we get what we want. We make a vow, we make a promise, looking for something, and when we get that something, we forget about the promise. This is what Ananias and Sapphira did in Acts chapter 5. Listen, listen to Acts chapter 5 with me for a moment. 
Luke writes this about Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the property and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what was happening is people in the church were bringing goods to help fellow Christian believers and they were sharing things with one another to be able to survive. And Ananias and Sapphira had a piece of property and thought, we'll sell it, but we don't want to give all of it. We're going to tell them we're going to give all of it, but we're only going to give part of it. They won't really know, and they're right. They wouldn't necessarily know. But the Spirit had other plans. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Luke continues the story and tells us that his wife came in and did the same thing and was even asked if she was telling the truth and said, yes, lying, and was struck dead again. They both vowed empty vows to the Lord. They both promised that they were doing something and did not pay it and even had no intention of paying it. And so God judged them. God struck them down. He takes vows. He takes promises very seriously because they show his character and nature. God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. And if we do not keep our promises that we make to one another and to him in his house, we show him to be a liar. And that's foolish because God has no pleasure in our foolishness. This is the reason that he says, don't make foolish vows. Verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Look at what he does instead in verse 6. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? God has no pleasure in fools and in fact destroys the work of their hands or sometimes even destroys the fool themselves as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. You might think this is cruel or vindictive or abusive of God, but I assure you it is not. In doing this, God is angry and judges the things we hope he would judge. We hope that God would judge a religious hypocrite who is abusing fellow believers for the sake of looking more holy. We would hope that God would judge someone who prays on the weak and vulnerable, making promises to them that he has no intention of keeping, wouldn't we? This is right for God to judge. It says that this is sin and that God will judge it. The solution, the proverb that drives this home for us from the preacher, in verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. In other words, go to his house, guarding your steps, fearing God rightly, and you will avoid making these foolish vows. You will avoid speaking these rash words. The heart of foolishness and why churches are full of fools 
is that fools come to God's house mainly to be heard. Notice, they're speaking rash words, not drawing near to listen. They're making foolish vows in an attempt to fit in, in an attempt to curry favor with others. All of the activity is centered around them. Whether this is someone who comes to God's house like a Pharisee, with a bunch of religious talk, and with promises to be good and do good, or whether this is someone who comes to God's house like, for lack of a better word, an ex-evangelical, because I can't think of anything else to call this kind of person. Someone who comes to God's house not with promises to be good and not with religious talk, but who comes to God's house mainly to complain. Mainly to complain and argue and to offer up a promise to be authentic, whatever that is. Either person who comes to God's house is coming foolishly because at the center is a hasty heart taking the lead. Look at verse 2 again. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. At the heart of all of this foolishness, at the heart of rash words and at the heart of empty promises is a hasty heart. A heart that comes to God's house without being guarded, without thought, or with a thought that's only centered around the self, mainly coming to be heard. The problem for us as believers is that our culture disciples us in coming to God's house in this way. See, our culture right now is teaching us that institutions primarily exist as a means for our own self-expression. Here's what I mean by that. Instead of institutions existing to conform you to a standard, they exist to give you an opportunity to express yourself. So school right now, instead of primarily being about teaching you something and conforming you to good morals, for example, a school is about you learning to be yourself. You learning to be true to yourself. We are catechized in our culture right now that the highest good possible is that you are true to yourself. But if the reality is that it's hasty hearts that put us into the house of God as fools, then being true to yourself is not actually good. It's not actually what we ought to seek. This is called expressive individualism and it has permeated our culture And all of us feel and do it unthinkingly because we're constantly discipled that way. Rash words and empty promises spring from this then. Because what we do is we take our words and our promises and we perform them in front of God and neighbor to show that we really do belong here. To show that we're really a good person. We're trying to express what we think we ought to be or what we want to be rather than expressing the gospel. And when we do that, friends, when we're trying to belong in God's house because of what we do, we're bringing the sacrifice of fools. This is not the gospel. We don't belong here or come here because of what we do. And our reason for coming here is not primarily to express ourselves. The gospel says that we don't belong because we perform, but that we belong because Christ himself has already done the work. 
The gospel says that we don't come to express ourselves, but that we come to be conformed into the image of Christ. We don't come to realize our true self. We come to learn to be who God has created us to be. It's completely opposite from what our culture is discipling us in. The true gospel is that under the sun, God's house is full of fools, but they're fools being conformed into the image of Christ through the work of the Spirit. As we come and as we are discipled in God's wisdom and God's ways. So the wise guard their steps when they come to the house of God. Because they come not to express themselves or not to try to perform and fit in. But they come to be caught up into God's story. To be caught up into the drama that God is bringing about in all of history. The drama that God has created a people and that they have rebelled against him and that he is redeeming them in Christ Jesus and that he is making all things new. We come not to perform our own story and to try to gain acceptance in this house, but we come to be caught into that story and to be made fitting participants in that story. We come to gain wisdom for participating in God's story. And the way we do that the preacher says, is guarding our steps as we come to the house of God. When we guard our steps, then we learn what I like to call liturgical habits that change us into this image. The preacher hints at these as he unpacks this. God's word reshapes us through liturgical habits, such as coming in the first place. Verse 1, he says, when you go... Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. When you go implies that you go. Right? Liturgical habit number one that God uses to reform us into the image of Christ is actually just going to his house. We see this important in the Old Testament. It's still in the new though when we get to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We learn and are made new as we come, as we go. In the Old Testament, there was a pattern, right, of six days of work and then a day of rest, anticipating the rest that would come in Christ. But now we are discipled into this new pattern of what God is doing post-Jesus, which is starting our week on Sundays. For most of you, I imagine it's hard to conceive of this as the start of the week. It is for me too. But this is actually the start of our week. In the New Testament, the new pattern we have in Christ is one plus six, that we start on Sunday, are made into the image of Jesus, are reformed, and then we go out and are sent into mission from here. We learn this pattern by coming week in and week out. When you go to God's house, do this, the preacher says. What should we do? Habit number two, we are reformed by listening. Verse one, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. To draw near to listen, all of our worship of God starts with hearing. Our hearts are shaped by hearing the word of God. God calls Adam into existence and Adam responds, here I am. God calls the prophets and they respond, here I am. God calls his people 
And they respond, here I am. The Shema that God's people recited over and over in Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear the word of the Lord. As we read this morning in the call to worship, hearing the word of the Lord and living. This is where we start. We draw near to listen. And as we draw near to listen, God's words reform our heart. And instead of our heart constantly being shaped by the world's words, which we hear all week, our hearts are now reformed and reshaped by the powerful and living word of God. We come. We listen. As we listen, our hearts are quieted. The problem is hasty hearts in verse 2, right? The problem is our hasty hearts, and hasty hearts don't like to listen. As we force ourselves to come and to hear, as we respond in obedience, our hearts are quieted. We learn humility because the voice of God is what dominates the conversation. As God's word takes center stage, our words now spring forth from that fountain. So instead of speaking foolishly to our neighbor, we speak words of life because we speak God's words. So we come, we listen, our hearts are quieted. Habit number four, we respond then to God's promises. Instead of making our own promises to try to earn God's favor, we make promises in response to what God has already done. Because of the gospel that we have in Christ Jesus We hear God's promises in his word. Our hearts are filled with faith in those promises. And then out of those promises, we promise things like obedience and offerings of thanks. But we do it in response to God, who has first fulfilled his promises to us. We come, we listen, we quiet our hearts. We respond to God's promises. And habit number five, the way God reforms our hearts is by teaching us through all of this. To fear the Lord. That's where the preacher ends, right? Fear God. That's where he goes over and over again in this this sermon. And that's where we end as well. I want to read you a quote from Zach Eswine. His book, Recovering Eden. I commend it to you as a good meditation on the gospel in Ecclesiastes. It's very, very helpful. He says this, which I think captures this well. Church going is a God-hallowing activity. When we go, we keep trying again to hear him teach us to listen and to reorient our lives under the sun around his voice rather than ours, his character rather than ours, his grace rather than our performance, his ways rather than that which ransacks us under the sun. When God is present, people become quieter, not out of fear of being abused, but out of a recognition that true good, power, beauty, and wisdom have entered the room. When God is here, we respond in the fear of the Lord because of who he is. Not because we're afraid of him, because we'll be abused by him. But because he is true beauty and goodness and wisdom and glory. As we approach God's house, how we approach it shows what we think we will find there. And so friends, I want to commend the approach in Hebrews chapter 12 to us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29, and we'll end here today. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
That was what God's people experienced in the Old Testament. You've not come to that, though, he says. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and fear for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father God, we long to be in your house as your people offering you acceptable worship that's accepted not because we do it right, but because it springs out of the work of Christ Jesus that is accepted because Jesus has worked in our hearts to change us as we approach you. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would help us to guard our steps week in and week out, and I pray that you would work in us as we practice these habits to truly change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Would you help us now as we continue our worship and enjoy your table together? Amen.